Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Each week on Movable Dough, I sit down with a composer to talk about their lives, their musical journeys, and, of course, their music. Come with me as we explore each unique path into composition and what they have to share with the world. For a complete archive of episodes, as well as access to the shorter segments called Movable Snippets, visit my website, sdcompose.com slash movabledough. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Dr. Sarah Rimkus. Sarah is an award-winning composer of choral, vocal, and chamber works. She earned a BM in composition from the University of Southern California and an MM and PhD in composition from the University of Aberdeen. Her work often explores issues such as communication, belonging, and relationship to the environment through the use of musical layering and contradiction. Sarah's music has been performed extensively throughout the United States, the United Kingdom, and elsewhere, including ensembles such as the Esoterics, C4 Ensemble, Harmonium Choral Society, the Jeswaldo Six, and many others. Sarah Rimkus, it is a pleasure to have you on the program. Welcome to Movable Dough. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So I often start these interviews by going back to the beginning of your musical journey, but I'd actually like to start today with something a little more recent. So I ran into this project that you're involved in called Compose Her. So this sounded like yeah. a fascinating project, and I'd, I'd love you to tell the audience more about it, your role in it, and maybe what we can expect from it. Absolutely. Uh, this uh, The Compose Her project is a project that was put on by the Glasgow School of Art Choir, which is a large community choir connected to the Glasgow School of Art in, in Glasgow, Scotland, but not solely comprised of students. Uh, people from all walks of life are in that choir, including folks that, that don't read music, some that do read music. Uh, it's a very um, it's a, a wide-ranging group, but they have commissioned a great many composers over the years. They're amazing advocates for new music. And they put on this project to commission seven female composers in Scotland. Hmm. And of course, this was actually when I still lived in Scotland. <laughs> the pieces were supposed to be premiered in, uh, in 2020. So uh, it's been a few years now, and I, of course, no longer live there. But they're um, very, very kind, of course, in, in keeping me involved in the project and performing my commissioned work still. Uh, one of the amazing things about that particular project is they really let us have free reign over the content of our pieces. Uh, I think that oftentimes when there are projects that uh, are trying to focus on a particular uh, marginalized or historically marginalized group of people, sometimes the assumption is that you're going to write on particular topics mm -hmm. or that, you know, if, if you're, if you're part of a, project uh, focusing on female composers, sometimes maybe there's a little bit of an assumption that you're going to write about, you know, female issues, whatever that, whatever on earth that means. <laughs> uh, but they really let us uh, do whatever, whatever we want. And that was, that was really brilliant uh, because I think it'll give the ensemble a lot of different works to, to sink their teeth into. And of course, um, it's going to contribute a lot of different things to the repertoire because they also commissioned us to write works uh, with a little bit more length to them. The pieces are all about 10 minutes long, oh, uh, which that's is fantastic. a little bit more significant than typical three or four minute choral work. So is this, so an, it, is this an ongoing thing or is it ended or, or what's happening? Uh, well, we've all written the pieces, of course. Um, it, it's, it, it's, uh, it's one particular concert that is going to be put on in, this upcoming May, okay. May 2023. It's just been delayed a, a few times, uh, so that's that's still still upcoming. Well, um, but of course, the pieces have been finished for some time. That's awesome. So that'll be actually right around the time that this episode airs. So that's yeah, perfect timing. oh, that's perfect. Yeah, and uh, I'm I'm really really hoping to to make it out there uh, for for the concert. That's the plan, at least. That's awesome. Well, you know, I was interested in your journey growing up because you were born in Washington D.C., moved across the country to my neck of the woods in Washington State. Uh, now you're in Minnesota, but via Scotland for grad school. So I actually want to start there. What took you to Scotland? Well, I. Uh, developed a love of choral music during my time at USC. 
Uh, of course, there's a thriving choral community there. Uh, Morton Lauritsen was still teaching there at the time that I was there. So got to know the, his music and the music of many others through my time at USC. And I really wanted to go somewhere for graduate school that I could focus on choral music. Uh, a lot. There are so many amazing composition programs and so many amazing uh, choral programs at institutions of higher learning in, in the U.S., but oftentimes the, the composition programs don't always uh, focus on choral music or have that much of a, an interest in choral music. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to uh, hone in on that and continue my work writing for The Voice. Uh, I'd also never, I'd never really been abroad. Uh, I'd been to Canada a few times, but uh, had had never been abroad beyond that, and was just looking for something different to do. You know, I wanted a, a, a I wanted to have a, a different experience uh, than perhaps continuing along, I guess, the expected pipeline for composers of concert music going up through graduate. Uh, so I discovered the University of Aberdeen, uh, where uh, uh, Paul Mueller was uh, was teaching uh, teaching composition, um, and also uh, a number of other uh, folks have gone to to school there over the years. And I ended up uh, I ended up doing my PhD with another excellent choral composer named Philip Cook. Mm. Uh, so thriving community. Um, a lot of folks doing great work over there in choral music. Yeah. So that I, was how I ended up there, and it, it worked out perfectly. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, I actually have a former guest of the show, Mike Merrill, mm -hmm. who also yep. got his PhD in Aberdeen. Yes, yes. Mike came along uh, a year later okay. than, than I did. Yeah. Awesome. So I'd, I'd been there a year when, when Mike came along. A lot of Americans over there. <laughs> good, good fun. <laughs> so... Thinking about your time there, what is one lesson you learned at the University of Aberdeen that you see reflected in the music you're writing now? I think I learned the most about the performance reality of choral music because I sang so much while I was there. So I gained a great deal of experience, not only singing in choirs, but singing in choirs with really excellent singers, mm -hmm. excellent sight readers in particular, and uh, choirs with limited rehearsal time. <laughs> so I learned a lot about that kind of pragmatism of really just what's what's going to work and what's sure. not going to work, and all of all of that good stuff that you learn about with experience as opposed to uh, theoretical study. Sure. And I think specifically, though. I learned the value of an appropriate challenge when it comes to choral music and uh, music in general. Uh, I tend to, I, I do tend to write music that is a little bit more on the difficult side for choral singers, I suppose. And I've learned to kind of embrace that, I suppose. I think that, um, with the texts that I choose and the sort of concepts that I choose, sometimes a little bit of a challenge or a little bit of that kind of difficulty and that tension in the performance aspect of the piece is appropriate to the, the musical result. Sure. And I've learned to embrace that when that is the case and be strategic about if I'm going to write a piece that is going to be a little bit of a challenge, making sure that it's an appropriate challenge and the sort of the, the musical workout is really contributing to the to the overall effect. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely get that. Okay, so finally going back to Washington, D.C. Going to get back to the mm -hmm. beginning now. So <laughs> tell me about your beginnings. Did you come from a musical family or, or how did you get started in music? Uh, I got started in music the same way that I think many folks get started in music, which was with piano lessons. Started piano lessons around five or six years old with uh, our neighbor, uh, Mrs. Quinlan, when we still lived in Washington, DC. 
We we moved from Washington D.C. to Bainbridge Island, Washington, when I was about eight years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I re- I remember uh, I remember Virginia, but not terribly well. Uh, don't don't have don't have a super strong connection there. Uh, but I I do remember it a little bit. Continued piano lessons uh, well into high school. I would say I sort of got serious around mus- about music when I was about 12 or 13 years old. That was when I started really getting interested in how music worked in mm. particular. And I started practicing more and really diving into the pieces that I particularly enjoyed. By the time I was well into high school, I was definitely more interested in composing and arranging and music theory and those kinds of things than in performance. You know, I was I was all I was decent at, at piano performance, but I was never going to be a great performer. <laughs> I think that's um, I think that's a path that a lot of composers go down, to be honest with you. Uh, And that was certainly the case for me. So when I was about 16, I was very fortunate to find a teacher that would um, continue to help me with piano a little bit, but more so allow me to focus on composition and help teach me composition. His name was was Patrick Stoyanovich. And he, he really got me started in composing when I was in high school. Oh, very nice. So was fortunate to have some support from for composition-wise a pretty young age. So did you decide in high school that this was the path that you wanted to follow in college yes. and pursue composition? Yes, I did. Uh, I, I sort of, I came to the conclusion that I was going to be most happy if I pursued music on a on a professional level or at least uh, uh you know in in college as my main concentration <laughs> so ma- decided to uh decided to uh attempt to go to undergrad for composition specifically oh very nice uh, and made it happen yeah <laughs> so. and now phd and it's fabulous mm-hmm. so you are mm-hmm. still a, a young composer with a promising career in front of you <laughs> is there something on your bucket list that you'd like to write someday, an opera or a requiem or, or something else? What, what would you always love to write? Mm, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I, I, I'd have to, to give you a really intelligent answer. I'd have to give that a little bit of, a little <laughs> bit of thought. I, I feel like I haven't, I feel like I haven't been able to think that way in a little while. Uh-huh. Um, I had a, I had a baby four months ago. Uh, so (laughs) I'm a little bit in a place right now where, you know, if I, if I finish a a four minute choral piece, I'd be, I'd be pretty darn, I'd be pretty darn proud of myself. Um, but gosh, I, I still would love to, I still would love to write a chamber opera someday. Hmm. Uh, that's not something I've ever had a serious opportunity to explore. And I, I would really love to. Um, I would have to really dig in and figure out uh, what that might look like. You know, that would certainly take some take some time. But would love to explore that at some point. All right. Well, any um, universities I, or opera companies out there listening, Sarah's ready to write yeah, a chamber opera. Or... <laughs> absolutely. Or I mean, librettists looking to collaborate. That might be a, a good first there step you go. as well. There you go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one thing I did not mention in your bio is that you're an instructor at uh, Michigan Technological University teaching composition mm-hmm. and music fundamentals. So when you start with a new class teaching composition, what is the first lesson you teach them? So uh, I at Michigan Tech, I mostly teach individual students. Okay. Um, and I've also taught, I've taught composition students privately over the years as well. And when I, when I start with, composition students, um, assuming that they have, assuming that they have composed a little bit in the past, uh, what I try to start with is getting a sense of what their music is really wanting to be about, uh, at its core. Hmm. And the, one of the words that I 
always come back to both with my myself and with uh, keeping myself on this journey and with students is honesty uh, and being honest with yourself and being honest about what you want to write and what the music that you're working on is kind of wanting to be mm-hmm. and letting it letting it do what it wants to do sometimes you have to just kind of uh sometimes you have to kind of get out of the way uh sometimes you have to be honest with yourself about what's working and embrace what's working and be honest with yourself about you know if there's that nagging voice in the back of your head that says that something's not working to to kind of trust that voice as well uh so i i try to really get in and explore um you know what are the best of my students natural tendencies and their natural strengths and how can we build on that and help them learn to embrace what they really want out of their work oh i love that i love that i'm gonna i'm gonna think about that concept that's awesome uh so sarah what i I love teaching (laughs) uh what do you do for fun when you're not musicking i mean i know right now you've got a four-month-old baby uh, but what sort of hobbies do you have? Yeah. <laughs> um, I love cooking, honestly. Yeah. Uh, that's probably my main hobby at this point is is cooking. <laughs> uh, as as funny as that sounds, um, that's I I I do I do enjoy cooking and uh, exploring new recipes and um, I I love Thai food. I love Sichuan food. Um, and exploring particular cuisines of, of that part of the world. Uh, and that's, that's probably my main thing. Uh, I, I love, I love, I love hiking. I love getting outside as well. Not really happening at the moment. Uh, <laughs> You'd come back to Washington. I live in the Twin Cities and it's, <laughs> it's, it's still winter here. Um, but yeah, uh, not, uh, not tons of time for for hobbies at the moment. Yeah, probably um, not so I do. I I I would say that. I mean, it is important to it is important to have interests outside of music. Um, you know, I I I try to embrace embrace that because if you don't have interests outside of music, where are your where are your ideas going to come from? You know. Um, right. But uh, I suppose I also just embrace that by watching documentaries and there you go. watching TV and <laughs> listening to podcasts. So I don't know if those count as hobbies. <laughs> hey, I'll, I'll count a podcast as a hobby. <laughs> All right, before we take a quick break, uh, I'm going to ask you, Sarah, to play a quick game with me that this week I'm calling When You Wash Your Clothes, Don't Put It on the Ring Cycle. I'm going to ask you a series of five true or false statements about Richard Wagner. You are a winner just for playing the game. And those at home, follow along and see if you can do as well as Sarah. Okay, number one, true or false? Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Wagner was the only one of his siblings to receive piano lessons as a child. Uh, True. It's actually false. He actually did not show musical aptitude as a child and was the only child in the family not to receive piano lessons. (laughs) (laughs) All right, number, (laughs) number two, true or false? He wrote a play when he was 13 years old that he insisted should be set to music, which is why he started music lessons. I mean, that seems reasonable. I guess I'll go with true. That is true. The play was called Louis Bald. All right. Number three, true or false. One of Wagner's greatest gifts to music was the leitmotif, a musical signature designed to represent a character, a technique still used by film composers today. That, that's true. That is true. Yeah. John Williams, of course, is a prolific user of the leitmotif. Number four, true or false, it is estimated that it took Wagner nearly 20 years to finish writing the complete ring cycle. I'll go with true on that one. It was close. It was false, actually. It took about 26 years from wow. 1848 to 1874. Well, <laughs> yeah. Full premiere in 1876. And number five, true or false, it takes about 15 and a half hours to perform the entire ring cycle spread over the course of four nights. I think that's true. That is true. Although it's usually not done. Yeah, I was trying to do the math in my head. Yeah. (laughs) It's usually not done in four consecutive days as that would probably kill the singers. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for playing, Sarah. You are a winner. That was excellent. After a quick break, we're going to come back and we're going to listen to some of Sarah's compositions. Welcome back. This is Steve Danielson. I'm talking today with Dr. Sarah Rimkus. So today we're going to start with a Christmas piece, Mater Day for SSATB Acapella Choir. You say that this piece is an attempt to explore the human side of Mary, the mother of Jesus. What do you do in this piece that aids that goal? So I think uh, the main thing that I did with this piece to aid that was my text choice. Uh, the the Yeats poem, The Mother of God, uh, is a really uh, beautiful and visceral account uh, from the perspective of Mary herself about the, the wonder and the fear uh, that you can imagine a young woman might actually experience if, you know, visited by an angel and told that she's going to give birth to a god like that's a pretty intense experience yeah. and i think that oftentimes the religious the religious texts sort of uh don't necessarily communicate that human experience that she would have had and tend to focus on her as sort of this uh, as something more divine or more pure when she, she would have been a human woman, you know? Yeah. And so by bringing the, the Ave Maria together with that Yates text, I felt that was much more humanizing um, than, than other things that I might have done. And I, uh, it was a specific request that I incorporate the Ave Maria plain chant uh, into this piece. Um, when I wrote it for Owen Park and the Cambridge Chorale. So I incorporated that in a, in a pretty florid, expressive kind of way that I hope helped drive up the, in the musical intensity of the piece uh, to, to contribute to that sense of wonder and fear and intensity. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think that would be a pretty intense experience. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, well, we are now going to listen uh, to Mater Day here performed by the Cambridge Chorale with Owen Park Conductor.
All right, next we're going to listen to a piece with lyrics that were a favorite of John F. Kennedy's, O God Thy Sea. So how did you become familiar with this poem, and what were you attempting to do with this setting? That's a that's a great question. Uh, I became familiar with this little line of text because of The West Wing, uh, which is a, a has been a favorite show of mine for a long time. It's kind of my my comfort blanket TV uh, mm. that I can kind of watch over and over again, and uh, it's uh, it's just one of my one of my shows that I continually go back to. And on the show, in a few different episodes, there were shots of this plaque on President Bartlett's desk that said, Oh, God, thy sea is so great and my boat is so small. And apparently that was, uh, you know, the, the, the producers of the show took that, uh, took the inspiration from the, a plaque that John F. Kennedy had on his desk mm -hmm. uh, that said this same Breton fisherman's prayer. And it was one of those, you know, it's so exciting to come across these short little statements that say so much in so few words. I feel like there's so many musical possibilities to something like that. And just the, the, the sense of scale and the sentiment was just really beautiful. And I wanted to set this line of text in a way that really stretched it out and made textures that sounded like the ocean. So I basically just did it all in a giant aleatoric setting mm -hmm. uh, with, with, the line, with the lines and boxes on, on the score. <laughs> uh, and, you know, the singers will have, the singers at any given time have little cells of one or two notes that they repeat independently of each other. Uh, you can achieve you can achieve a lot of textures that way that you can't achieve with fully notated rhythm because if you tried it would be way too difficult to sing. Yeah. So was able to achieve that rolling water sound. Uh, I hope to communicate the the gravity and the scene of this little fisherman's prayer. Sure. So to create that atmosphere of of ocean and water, uh, you create these long sustained lines for the singers I, i'm just curious what do the singers think when they see those long sustained lines like how am i going to breathe <laughs> um yeah sometimes you have to sometimes you have to um you have to just work with them a little bit uh, <laughs> and get them to get them to buy into it uh of course whereas they're they're doing these things independently of each other so they can they can certainly take a moment to breathe wherever they need to because they're ideally going to be breathing at a different time than their neighbor anyway. Uh, so I think it's it's just a different mode of music making that, often, you know, a different mode of music making is always going to take a little bit of getting used to. Yeah. But then once you get used to it, um, it's it's just another it's just another way of doing things, and it uh, it can be a really great listening exercise uh doing pieces like this you know you really have to to listen to what's going on around you uh to 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 make it to make it work and it's that's that's pretty it's a good choral exercise i think well it is a beautiful piece that we are now going to listen to uh so we're going to listen to oh god thy sea performed here by the esoterics with eric banks conductor
All right. Thirdly today, let's turn to your piece, Uprooted, for SAT, SATB, Divided Chorus, and Soprano Soloist. The lyrics of this piece center around a tragic event in 1942, centered in your former home of Bainbridge Island, Washington. So tell us about this work and some of the resilient people you met along the way. Yeah, of course. Uh, I was uh, I was commissioned to write this piece uh, as part of the Esoterics' uh, composer competition several years ago now. And the theme for the concert was the Secular Requiem. Uh, and, uh, you know, Requiem-themed pieces that don't necessarily have religious connotations. So comfort for the living um, and seeking solace in, in moving through grief in, in that sort of way. So in searching for an appropriate topic for the piece, um, this was kind of what we landed on, uh, the story of the Japanese internment during World War II, because it is such a big part of the local history yeah. where, where I'm from and where the esoterics are, are uh, performing and operating. Uh, and so exploring the grief that comes with being taken away from your home uh, and being in, incarcerated, really. Uh, so in my, in my journey to, to write a piece about this, um, I really wanted to make sure that, you know, you, you want to do it the right way. Right. I wanted to talk to people who actually experienced this and make sure that I was getting a, a genuine perspective on, on this important historical event, especially because, you know, so there are people living right where I'm from that did experience this. And it would be, um, I'd be really amiss not to, not to speak with them about it. Yeah. So I went to our historical society on Bainbridge Island, uh, and uh, one of the docents working that day, uh, her name was Lily Kodama, and she actually was was incarcerated oh, when wow. she was seven during that time, and she just happened to be working at the museum that day. So I spoke to her, and I also spoke to another woman named Kay Sakai, who was 20, at the time, um, and in her 90s when I spoke to her, it was really, really amazing to speak to her because she, of course, had quite strong memories. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, she really did emphasize that feeling of being uprooted and, and, and feeling, feeling like you're up in air and feeling like you have no control and, you know, those those types of emotions when not only are you incarcerated, but you just don't know what's going to happen. Right. Um, so that, that was the, that was what I decided to focus on with this piece. Okay. Well, we are now going to listen to Uprooted here performed by the William Jewell concert choir and with Christina Vogler as soprano soloist.
All right, lastly today, we are going to talk about the St. Mocker Songbook. This work con- uh, connects you back to your studies in Scotland, as the work is written in honor of the ceiling at St. Mocker's Cathedral in Aberdeen. So was this written during grad school? This was actually written just afterwards. Just um, afterwards, okay. Believe it or not. Uh, yeah, yeah. I did sing with the St. Mocker Cathedral Choir during my final year in Aberdeen as a choral scholar. Um, and... Uh, I wanted to, um, you know, the the director, Roger Williams, asked me to write a piece for their, um, oh gosh, um, I can't, uh, maybe 500 year anniversary. I'm I'm, I'm blanking on the the number of hundreds of years uh, (laughs) because, you know, these, these religious institutions and buildings are so old over there it's really amazing um but in any case uh st macker's cathedral has one of the few heraldic ceilings to survive the reformation in scotland yeah tell us about the ceiling yeah it's it's a basically there are three rows of many different crests in the ceiling from the the bishops at the time um the sort of monarchs of of Europe at the time, um, and other various nobility at the time, sort of memorialized in this kind of geometric looking pattern in the ceiling. Mm. And and this was a more common thing, I believe, before the Reformation. And then most of them were destroyed. Mm. Uh, But this one survived. And so the St. Macker Cathedral, they're very proud of their heritage uh, with having this uh, architectural um, landmark uh, and historical um, artifacts surviving for so long. So to sort of memorialize this this uh, this ceiling, uh, I wrote a work in 16 short, very short movements. There were six, okay. 16 crests in the ceiling and 16 short movements. Gotcha. Um, and uh, I used a uh, various psalm texts from the sort of feast of St. Macker that kind of exists um, and lesson texts from the Aberdeen breviary, um, which, uh, so it was, it's kind of a fun mix of different texts that my goal was to create something that the choir can continue to use for many, many years. Yeah. And that these, these short psalm settings and, and, uh, various settings of other religious texts that they can sort of pull out and use for an anthem one Sunday uh, when when appropriate and sort of give them a songbook that they could use over the years in yeah, addition to a piece that can continually be performed and in in honor of uh, both the sort of geometric um, aesthetic of the ceiling and my my kind of compositional interests they're all canons Oh, okay. Uh, so they're all they're all canons in some way, uh, which means that uh, they've got a nice sense of polyphony, and also can be for a very flexible voicing. Sure. So you can you can you can do it with whoever happens to show up that Sunday. <laughs> um, so Perfect it was it was, it was you know talking talking before about different modes of working. Uh, this was definitely a very different mode of working for me um, for this piece, but one that I really, really enjoyed and felt like I, I learned a lot and uh, was really ended up being very proud of the result. All right. Well, we are going to listen to Psalm 113 from the St. Macker Songbook, performed by the Cathedral Choir of St. Macker's Cathedral with Roger Williams, conductor.
So, Sarah, what are you working on now that you can tell us about? Uh, right now, I am working on I'm I'm working on a little piece that I'm calling Marin's Lullaby. Hmm. Um, we, as I said, uh, I had a baby about four months ago uh, with my husband Thomas Lavoy. Um, her name is Marin, uh, and of course, uh, with two quite musical parents, we uh, seems like she's loving music already. And one of the pieces that I I played a lot for her both when she was still on the inside um, and when she was uh, a little baby uh, was the resurrection movement of uh, Bieber's mystery sonatas. Okay. Um, and uh, 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 Bieber was a really amazing avant-garde Baroque German composer who particularly pioneered works for the violin, especially. And he wrote these amazing mystery sonatas based on the mysteries of the rosary each movement uses a different scordatura turning tuning excuse me um really beautiful pieces and the resurrection movement is particularly um uh, it's mostly a pasacalia uh in a in a really lovely kind of three four lilting pattern uh and it sort of it comes across a little bit like a lullaby um and so I've been working on a, a sort of choral reflection okay. on the piece uh, that I hope is going to be really um, that I hope is going to be really beautiful. Excellent. Well, we will look forward to that. Mm-hmm. And Sarah, if my if my listeners want to learn more about you, where are you located online? Website, uh, social media. Yep, yep. Uh, you can definitely check out my website uh, www.sarahrimkis.com. Um, you know, I have a, I have a reasonably unusual name, so I'm fairly <laughs> easy to find. Um, you can, you can find me on, on Facebook, of course, if you're, if you're into that, uh, you can find me on Instagram, uh, where you can see most these days is mostly baby photos. Um, <laughs> but you can also see photos of my cooking, uh, uh quite, uh, fairly often. Um, I, I have a Twitter, but I don't really use it. So I would rec- if you're if you're looking to connect, I would recommend Facebook or Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. Well, hey, listeners out there, this is the part of the show where I normally plug becoming a subscribing member or buying some movable dome merch or something like that. I'm going to do something a little different today. If you enjoyed learning more about choral music, I'm actually going to recommend checking out a different podcast, uh, the podcast Choralosophy. Chris Muntz hosts and produces the show, covers all sorts of topics relating to choral music. He has conversations with choral conductors about any number of topics. His website, choralosophy.com, is a great resource for choral musicians and choral music lovers. I'm not getting any kickback for this promo. Chris doesn't even know I'm promoting his show. I've just been impressed with his work and think it's worth sharing. So, Sarah, it has been wonderful getting to know you and more about your music, and I thank you for joining me today on Movable Dough. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed speaking with you as well. Fantastic. My guest today was composer Dr. Sarah Rimkus. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledoe at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. Sorry,